Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in him in every way, in all speech and all knowledge. In this way, the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will also strengthen you to the end, so that you will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. We, are, we were called by Him into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, this morning, we come to You desiring to see You, to be encouraged by You, to grow near to You. Lord, You are faithful to us. You've given us everything that we need for godliness. Lord, on our own, we are so sinful and broken. We are very needy people. This morning we are distracted. We're filled with anxiety. God, there's a lot uh, going on in this world uh, that keeps us from setting our, our focus on you. This morning, as we sing, as we come together as your people, as we hear from your word, Lord, would you please uh, lift up our hearts, lift our gaze, to see Jesus come through it. Help us to worship you now. Amen. Jesus, help us. Thank you. 
He is a type of the coming one. Would you pray with me? Father, we are sinners by nature. And left on our own, we would pursue all the things that the world calls us to pursue, all the things that our heart desire that would just lead to death. But you sent your son to redeem us, to set us free from the bondage of sin and death. And though he has conquered death, Lord, we continue to struggle until you return. So would you forgive us? Forgive us where we continue to uh, follow the demands of, of our flesh and help us to walk in obedience. You give us your spirit. You tell us that we can. So help us as we hear your word this morning. Would it pierce our hearts? Would it cut through all the distraction, all the all the, the callousness of our heart? All the walls that we built up. To see the beauty and the goodness of Jesus. Do this this morning for your glory. Amen. Amen. As you're seated, uh, we're going to continue in prayer for some specific needs as we do each week. So, uh, you hear me? Close up. Let's, uh, let's continue in prayer this morning for some specific needs as we do each week. It's just our way of being reminded as a church family the truth of Philippians 4, 6, and 7, that we don't have to be anxious for anything, but in everything, with prayers and petitions and supplications, we present our requests to God. And He promises that when we do that, the peace that passes all understanding will guard our hearts and minds of Christ Jesus. So essentially, we don't have to worry about anything, we just pray about it. And Jesus promises to fill us with peace. And so that's why we pray for these specific needs. Um, not only that, but we believe it's part of how God accomplishes His purpose, His mission, growing His kingdom around the world. It's through the, His people praying, and His people obeying, and His people responding. And so we, when we pray for these specific things, like we're not just saying words, we're like talking about people, in real places, real situations, and we're asking God to move and to work in these, these situations. So, Father, we love you. We trust you. We ask you to help us lean on you more, that we would have a greater desire to spend more time with you, to recognize that you're always with us. We ask that you would create in us an urgency to more and more arrange our lives according to your schedule. You would change us and make us more like you, that we would more and more embrace your vision for who we are. Father, help us as the crossing to represent you to the world, to each other through DNA groups, to encourage other local churches to faithfully carry out disciple-making. Help us love one another as a witness to the world that uh, you said that we should be doing so that when other people see us loving each other, they will know we are disciples of Jesus. Help us to disciple each other with deep gospel shepherding, even with our students and our youth. Teach us not to neglect or idolize our kids, but to disciple them faithfully. Help us to press into these weekly gatherings and help us to stir our affections for you. 
show us how we can be better partners with some of the other gospel proclaiming churches in our area like the Well or First United Methodist in Monroe or First West. Help all of these churches reach ULM through prayer and support with ministries like the Wesley Foundation, the BCM. And also just by showing up and being present to build relationships and to love students so that God's word can be shared in word and deed. Uh, we say this often, but we want to make you, you make it true of us, help us to continue to be a sin in church, not only with those that we have sent, but with more and more that can be sent. And help us to partner with local churches to give the gospel to every language group in the world. Be with those who have been sent, the T family in Berlin, the Banks family in Oakland, be with their families and their children. Remind them of right now and in the coming weeks that you are with them. We want to care for them well, but only you can do that through us. We need you and your power to sin, pray, advocate, and care for these gospel workers. Only you can truly comfort them as they, uh, as, as they see prices picked up from uh, of COVID and inflation and other um, uh, shortage issues around the world. We pray for the V family as they prepare to welcome baby Abel into the, the world. We pray for no complications. We pray for healthy delivery. We pray for uh, uh, both the mom and the dad to be healthy and joyous as Abel comes into the world. We praise you, Father, for the miracle that you've worked in resolving their visa and passport issues. Even when an earthly authority has said it wouldn't happen, you made it happen because you are a good dad. Father, be with the Biden administration, the rest of national government, local government, state government, so that we might live quiet and peaceful lives. We pray you would direct their decisions and thoughts. Be with those who are still grieving today on 9-11, that you continue to heal our nation, that our foreign policies help rather than hinder sending out more missionaries. Give them wisdom that only can come from you. Breathe life into the churches in this nation so that we would experience renewal. And make your kingdom known through your body. Help us be a real and clear representation of who you are to the world, even to our nation and leaders. We lament that we are still praying for unreached people groups. We want that to change. Everyone should have an opportunity to hear the gospel before the end of life. And we pray that that is going to happen. We know there will be worshipers from every single language and people group around your throne one day. And so we pray, knowing that that promise is going to be fulfilled, we want it to happen sooner than later. One day there will be worshipers among the watches. One day there will be worshipers from the Aceh and the Bayan and the Bon and the Tongan and the Tibetan Jonah in China, Laz and the Zaza peoples in Turkey. And we thank you that we are a part of praying for that, helping support, send workers, resources, or all the things you've allowed us to do to see this happen. And so... Work in us this morning as we sit under the preaching of your word, as we worship you through song, through prayer, through communion. We want to be transformed. You've given us a life. You've given us a calling, a purpose, uh, a desire to make Jesus known, to enjoy Jesus, to share the good news of the gospel with other people. And, and we struggle to do that, Father. We confess that this morning. We fail. We fall short. We make mistakes. We're weak. We're cowardly. We're timid. We say things incorrectly or we don't say anything at all. In all the ways that we fall short, we thank you that Jesus and his sacrifice is sufficient to forgive, to restore, to empower, and to help us start again. And so teach us what that looks like and show us how to obey. 
and empower all of these things for the glory of Christ alone. We pray in his name. Amen. All right, as you turn to John 16, we'll be in a passage eventually in John 16. This is one of the exciting times of the year. We'll wake up tomorrow morning and it will be 60 degrees. Yeah. We're a week away from fall, officially. And it will still be Louisiana hot for a little while longer, but we'll start to have more and more of those crisp mornings. The sun will set earlier and earlier. Leaves will begin to turn soon. Some of you, if you were brave enough to admit it, have already put out some type of fall decoration in your house. You've already ordered your first pumpkin spice latte because you think that ordering that would make fall come sooner somehow. Maybe if I burn a candle that's related to fall, it makes fall happen faster. Footballs are full swing, stadiums are full on Friday night, Saturday night, and today they're full on Sunday. Guys and gals, maybe some gals will be checking your phones before we leave to see how your fantasy team is already doing three minutes into the first quarter, as if something's going to happen that fast. What a time to be alive. Even you all one last night. I mean, miracles can happen. Uh, now, those are some of the many things that bring us great joy in life. And there's many more, right? But these are examples of things that we will order and arrange our life around to celebrate, to enjoy, to participate in, along with healthy marriage and families, good jobs that we're successful at and that make a difference, being physically fit, enjoying good food and good drink. All of these things bring us great joy and all of these things we center our life around. And none of those are bad. There's nothing wrong with any of those things that I made. But... All of those things can and do become idols that we worship. Things that give us great joy, but if we're worshiping those things, they actually can begin to drain the life out of us. And we could have a whole other conversation about finding joy in sin, which we know clearly that's not ever going to be life-giving. That's going to actually destroy us, and we should repent and run away from that. But even in the good things that we enjoy, that can become sin when we idolize the good. And the reality is, you can idolize a perfect family, you can idolize a job, you can be successful and make money, you can be a great student, accomplish a much, in, a much in your academic career, you can idolize the success of your kids in school, their social status, their sports accomplishments. You can show up, and, and then you can show up in places like this and be patted on the back about how you're just killing it in life. Man, your family looks great. You look great. Your social media posts are just perfect. Like you, could life be any better for you? And the whole time, you're just worshiping idols. While you're checking the box about what culture says is most important. Images you're bowing down and serving to maintain. So this is part of what gets to the heart of why we say at the crossing, we exist for all people to enjoy Christ always. This is why we live as individuals and why we live and work as a church, for everyone to find their ultimate joy in life, in Christ, always, in all circumstances. And that all the good things that we just named come from Christ as gifts of His grace and are intended for Christ to be praise and glory to Him and not to become ultimate. This expression to find... Um, all, uh, to, to enjoy Christ always is not intended to be something super spiritual. So that only when we're doing something that will be considered spiritual should we find joy. So 
I'm reading the Bible, I'm in a worship gathering, I'm singing songs to Him, I'm praying. That's what you're talking about. No, no, this is intended to be a statement that helps us to see that in all things there is a joy we can experience that should be ultimately rooted in Jesus. Because it ultimately flows from Jesus. So yes, enjoy the fall season, pumpkin spice lattes and fall flavored candles and family and football and work. All of it, but don't let your joy end, terminate on the temporary. But let it be used, use the temporary to find ultimate joy in Christ. He is the one who's given us life. He is the one who has sustained your life. He is the one who suddenly ordained that you live when you live, where you live, around the people you live, with the opportunities that you have. He is the one that's wired your body to be able to enjoy these things. He's given us so much so that we can find joy in these things. And therefore, we use these things to now praise Him and glorify Him and not make these things ultimate. If our joy terminates or finds its ultimate expression in what is temporary, then what happens when the temporary fades, ends? Do you lose it? Where does your joy go? If you love fall, what happens at Christmas when all the leaves have fallen? And winter begins. Where does the joy go? And we do this. Like we literally do this as human beings. I read years ago, a pastor who, who wrote a lot, uh, learned a lot from him, a pastor in New England in the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s. And he would talk about in February, he would have most of his counseling appointments. And in the summer, he would have most of his writing time. The reason, by February, at the end of winter, the people in New England would be sick of winter. They would be depressed, no sunlight, can't go outside, can't I'm tired of people, I'm tired of life, I need help. And he would have to do a lot of counseling in February. In the summer, the sun is out, it's warm, fun things to do, his people were happy. So he had time to write, he wasn't needed to counsel. He had a people that was finding their joy in the temporary in the things that come and go, the circumstances of life, and not finding their ultimate joy in Christ. And we do the same thing. We all struggle with it in this room. But if we can see beyond the temporary and see that our joy ultimately flows from Christ in grace and should flow back to Him in praise, then we can actually experience His joy always, even in the Februaries of life and in the summers of life. We take time as a church every September to teach and equip our people with some of the why and the what we are as a church. We call it a vision series. It's a yearly way of reminding ourselves not only who we are, but why we exist as a church, and then sometimes what exactly we're doing and why we do it that way. What are we, ch what are we chasing and why are we chasing it like that? Uh, in, in some weeks, it's like a short series, just a couple of weeks, just this little tune-up reminder. And then some weeks, like this year, every few years, we, we take a much longer amount of time. And we felt led to do that this year with, with so many new people to go to, to take seven weeks to really dig deep into who we are as a church and why we do things the way that we do it as a church. So over the next seven weeks, we'll dig into our vision, our mission, why we're organized as missional communities, what are those, if you don't know what those are yet. What are DNA groups? Why do they exist? And why do we believe they're so important? And why we think everyone should be a part of a DNA group that's healthy and, and thriving? What are we trying to accomplish on Sundays when we gather? Like, why do we do this? Is it just because 
That's what we did growing up. It's what's expected of a church. What are we actually trying to accomplish when we gather? Why do we have elders? Why do we have covenantal members? Why do we have why, why do we have deacons? Why do we want, want more of all of those things? What, is, what does it mean to be a church that practices covenantal membership? So we hope that after seven weeks, after hearing this, you're like, yes, I want to do that even more. I want to be more committed. I'm all in. Let's let's. How can I uh, serve and, and accomplish more as a member of this local uh, body of Christ? Um, and, and then we also know, after seven weeks, we hope that the Spirit exposes ways in which we're not doing well. In which our people and our leaders, we can say, okay, how do we get better at this? Like, if you go to the doctor for a checkup, I can promise you he's going to find something in your life, your blood work, your whatever, is that you need to get better at this. A little less sugar, a little more exercise, a little more sleep, blah, blah, blah. He's going to find something that needs to be fixed. It's the same thing for us as a church. Like, we know things aren't all functioning the way we want it to function. Like, if you're showing up here regularly on Sundays, and you're not really doing anything, like serving in any capacity, using your spiritual gifts, we would say, that's not okay. Like, everyone is needed to contribute to, to make Sundays function, to make missional communities function, to make DNAs function. And so, some of this could be very personal and individual. Like, okay, work, what am I supposed to do? How can I serve? How can I help? I can't sing. You don't want me up there singing. But I, I can do other things. I'm not going to preach. But I, I can't work with kids. But there's other things that can be done. Show up early, set up, help clean up after. All kinds of ways that we can serve, help accomplish what God wants us to accomplish on Sundays, in mission communities, DNA groups, so forth and so on. And so that's what we hope he accomplishes over the next seven weeks. Uh, years ago, we were trying to articulate what we saw as the vision of this church. And we knew that uh, certain terms in our culture carried weight and baggage that we had to recognize. So we couldn't just say that our vision as a church was we wanted as many people as possible to become Christians. Even though that is true, we do want that. But in a parish of 150,000 people with 200 plus churches and a population that probably identifies at least 90% as Christian. Then what does it mean that you want everyone to become a Christian when over 90% of the people are Christian? Why do we even plant a church here? And for someone plan, planning to plant a church, that's a great question to ask, especially when we still have over 3,000 people groups and the numbers of people who have yet to hear the gospel are still in the billions. Like, why plant a church in America, in the Bible Belt South? I know when Jennifer and I were praying through the possibility of church planting in early 2013, we wrestled with that question. We literally first assumed the thought, we're, we're not going to plant Monroe. Like we were in the Monroe area, but not. Monroe has enough churches. We thought he would call us to places of greater need, like New Orleans or Detroit, Nicaragua, some of the places we were praying about. And then we were surprised when God began to put together a team of people to do this in Monroe, making clear he wanted it, us here. Now, that was our story. If you're a church planter one day, if you're part of a church planting team one day, your story will look very different. And he'll also make it clear to you where and when and how and why and all those other things. But how do you articulate a vision to see people become Christians, to see disciple-making in an area that's so high already in the number of professed Christians? And so we decided to express it like this. We exist for all people to enjoy Christ always. Every word in there is intentional. We, we're doing it together. It's not just one person. We exist. We live. This is why God's created us. So it's not just something we do when we show up here. 
It's something that encompasses all of life. For all people, we want all people to experience this. Everyone needs it. The rich, the poor, the black, the white, the Hispanic population, the Asian population, all people here in Monroe, all people outside of Monroe in West Monroe and Washtenaw Parish, to the ends of the earth, to enjoy, find joy in Christ, ultimately the one who is the joy giver, and for it to happen in all of life, always. For it not to be a joy that comes and goes. Now, a vast majority of our culture does claim to be Christian, but a vast majority of that is just cultural Christianity. And far too few people are experiencing and finding their ultimate joy in Christ or experiencing joy in Christ always. It just kind of comes and goes based on how life goes. And that's where we see God helping us do this work. In a gospel-hardened area, many people have heard some version of the gospel, and they've made some version of a response, but they're lacking deep, overwhelming joy in that gospel, in that work of Christ. And so we, as the people of God, we invite them into our life, and with Jesus, to, for them to see the hope that, that we're living out, that we're experiencing, that we're proclaiming, and then their joy in Jesus will explode. Like they literally see something different in how we're enjoying Jesus and living life. We're not just checking the box. We're not just being religious. We're not just being fake. We're not just upholding an image. We're being honest and transparent and real and authentic about how hard life is, how tough life can be. But we're being very passionate about how real Jesus is in the midst of the heart. How real Jesus is in helping us overcome sin and addiction. And how this is something that we're, we're obsessed about. It's like all that life is about. And we're willing to sacrifice and give and serve and go. And we're willing to do crazy things like see people sent to the nations. And see people trained and equipped to go give their lives away in other countries. This is real. We're not just going through the motions. And that, and that the hope is that they would either come alive in Christ for the first time, spiritually they've been dead, and after hearing Jesus proclaimed and seeing the reality of Jesus lived out amongst God's people, that's real. I want to be a part of that. Or it might be that they've been like this immature follower of Jesus, kind of asleep to who they are and who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. They, they wake up to this new identity in his life that he's given them. Or it could be they've just been trapped in cold, dead religion and rule following. And Jesus helps them see that they are free to live and enjoy being a dearly loved son and daughter of their Father in Heaven. But however it looks, whether it's the lost being saved, the dead becoming alive, the blind being able to see, the immature waking up, the religious being set free, however it looks, it's all gospel work. It's all gospel work that Jesus wants to do in our city and our region, and to the ends of the earth. And we're part of who he has sent to do that here, where most of life happens, but also to the nations, among those that he sends and those that we help send, to get the joy of Jesus to as many people as possible. Joy is one of the attributes of God. And when you study systematic theology, you study something called the communicable and the incommunicable attributes of God. Real fancy words that... It's not really a complicated uh, topic. There are qualities of God that are only true of God. They're incommunicable to us. Like, we can't do these things. We're, we're not eternal. We're not omnipresent. 
present everywhere at the same time. We're not omniscient. We'll never be all-knowing. We're not um, omnipotent, all-powerful. Only God is those things. Those are incommunicable attributes. But there are attributes of God that we do get to share in. They're communicable through us, in us. Paul says, for instance, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are ultimately perfectly true in God. But when we come alive in Christ and Christ comes alive in us, the Spirit of God dwells in us. We become the temple of the Holy Spirit. So in the same way the Spirit of God dwells in the tabernacle and in the temple in the Old Testament, now and then in the God-man Jesus, so now in the church, the people of God, this is where God's Spirit now dwells. And where the Spirit of God dwells, the attributes of God will be seen and experienced. So that in us and through us, the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, the self-control, the gentleness, the faithfulness, are experienced, are seen. And that's just to name a few. And joy is one of these attributes of God that we get and we get to enjoy. I mean, just, just think about this. This attribute of God that is truest in Him that we get to share in. This joy of God that He's experienced within the triune Godhead for all of eternity between Father, Son, and Spirit. Like it comes to live inside of us and we get a taste of it. Not perfectly experienced like He's experienced. One day it will be. But in this broken, fallen world, there are times where the joy we feel is the same joy that resides in God. It's unbelievable. The love that we feel is the same love that resides in God. The peace that we feel, it's, it's supernatural. Like, literally, we don't have to watch Marvel movies or Star Wars to be amazed at the supernatural. Yeah, of course, okay. We don't have to be amazed by supernatural with those movies. Like, we experience supernatural power of God when we experience His love, His joy, His peace, His patience. And joy is something we've focused on. I mean, we could, I could have picked any of them, but joy is just something because it's, it seems to be so missing. And so many people are so shallow, just transient. It depends on circumstances of life. Listen to some of the passages that describe the joy of God in, in the Old Testament. Zephaniah 3.17, The Lord your God is among you, a warrior who saves he, God, will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you in His love. He will delight in you with singing. This is how God feels about His people. Proverbs 8, a passage that shows us wisdom personifying God, more specifically Jesus, the agent of creation. And wisdom is describing His role in creation in Proverbs 8, 30, 31. I was a skilled craftsman beside Him. Talk about wisdom. I was His delight every day, always rejoicing before Him. I was rejoicing in his inhabited world, delighting in the children of Adam. The Hebrew word that's translated as delighting in those passages is a word that actually means jumping up and down and clapping your hands. Like true, overwhelming, abundant delight. Like when's the last time you had so much delight that you were jumping up and down and clapping your hands? Honestly. Does anyone remember? Right? It's easy. We think of kids. Immediately. Because this is what kids are. Like we have things we don't tell our kids before they go to sleep. Because they won't sleep. They'll be so excited. Like one in particular. who happens to be around seven. He'll wake up every two hours in the night. Is it morning? Can I get up? Is it morning? Can I get up? So we have to say, don't, don't 
don't say, it's like it's code among the older people in the house. Don't say a word. When he wakes up, we'll tell him. So this week it was co-op was starting back. It's where a bunch of homeschool families come together once a week and they teach classes and kids are around each other and it's a ton of fun. He loves co-op. So he wakes up Tuesday morning, you know what today is? Co-op, yes! Like literally, that's his reaction. He loves to go anywhere and do anything. So he goes with us Tuesday night to play volleyball in Alexandria. We're in a gym literally for five hours. I'm miserable. He's not. He's having the time of his life. Never sleeps, comes home, gets out in after midnight, wakes up the next day tired, and he's like, I want to go to all the games. That was amazing. Just pure delight. Loves it. Great joy, great delight. But we get older, we're more refined, we're more polished. It's not always acceptable to express his emotions. Let's not get carried away. Let's keep him the best. I'm excited to come on. But this is how the Bible describes the joy and delight of God over the inhabited world, over the children of Adam, over his created image bearers, over his people. So this joy we see in God that we get to share in at times should be this jumping up and down and clapping. As Tim Keller says about this word, I've shared this many times over the years. Tim Keller says about this word, it's more like frolicking. When's the last time you frolicked? over anything. It should be hearty and loud belly laughs, smiles that fill a face, laughter that fills a room, and this exuberant joy flows from God and dwells inside of us, transcending all circumstances. As we say, we desire all people to enjoy Christ always, joy in Christ always. And that's, it's not saying that when bad things happen, we should just be laughing about it. Ha, ah, no problem. God's good. We're going to get through this. Some people do that. It's really offensive and fake. We're not saying that. Because there's time to also weep and still experience joy. But there's times to just get crazy. And let joy lead to frolicking and jumping up and down and delighting and laughing and clapping of your hands. Jesus revealed in John 16... You're still there. A joy that follows grief and sorrow, and is even commingled with grief and sorrow. John 16, verse 16. A little while, and you will no longer see me. Again, a little while, and you will see me. Then some of his disciples said to one another, What is this he's telling us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, you will see me. And, and because I'm going to the Father. They said, What is this he is saying, a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. Jesus knew they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Are you asking uh, one another about what I said. A little while you will not see me again. A little while you will see me. Truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn. But the world will rejoice. You will become sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is in labor, she has pain because her time has come. But when she has given birth to a child, she no longer remembers the suffering because of the joy that a person has been born into the world. So also, you also have sorrow. Now, but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy from you. The context of John 16 is the last night of Jesus' life. He's hours away from being illegally arrested, illegally tried, accused, and condemned, not for any sin he committed or a law he broke, but ultimately because he claimed to be the Son of God, which was true. That's his charge. And the Romans and the Jewish religious leaders got together and said he has to die. We can't have this. 
But God had ordained that Jesus would die the death of a criminal, and he willingly, lovingly, even as Hebrews 12 says, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. He who knew no sin became our sin in God's eyes, and God, instead of pouring out his wrath and condemnation and punishment for, for our sins on us who deserve it, he poured out his wrath and punishment on the only innocent one. This is the good news of the gospel. The godly dying for the ungodly, the just one dying for the unjust ones. And Jesus knows this is coming. He's just hours away. He knows his closest followers are about to experience great grief and fear and sadness. All that they believe Jesus to be, all that they've left to follow him and trust him to be, the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world, the long-promised Messiah, all of that is about to be tested as they watch him be killed as a criminal and buried in a tomb. And Jesus knows they're about to actually go into hiding and fear and wonder, are we next? How could this happen if he was the promised one? They had no idea he was going to rise from the dead. No idea. If they knew, they would have been at the tomb Sunday morning. None of them were there. They had no concept of a suffering Savior. They didn't see it. They didn't, no one did. This is what makes Jesus unique from all other gods. The suffering Savior. The God who comes close and suffers with us and for us. John Mark McMillan, he sings about this in, in his song, The Road That Rocks the Weeds. Jesus is the God who's come near to bleed and suffer. He says, come down from your mountain, your high-rise apartment, and tell me of the God you know who bleeds. What other God that anyone has ever created bleeds for his people? And what to tell my daughter when she asks so many questions and I've failed to fill her heaviness with peace? When I've got no answers for hurt knees or cancers, but a Savior who suffers them with me. Singing goodbye, Olympus, the Greek gods, what a joke. The heart of my maker is spread out on the road, the rocks and the weeds. And Aphrodite would not weep. And Zeus, he would never suffer for the weak. But have you come to stand inside my pain? Yes. Yes, he has. He's not distant. He's close. But the good news isn't just that Jesus would suffer for us. The good news is also he's triumphant and victorious. And he's bringing us to this eternal state, the land of no more. No more tears, no more death, no more suffering, no more sadness. The good news, he's coming to us to suffer for us and with us. And because he's suffered in this fallen, broken world, so will his people. Yet he's with us. This is a real and unique part of who Jesus is as compared to other religions. But Jesus also knows Sunday is coming. He knows he's about to blow their minds when on the third day the women would go to the tomb to prepare his body for long-term burial and it would be empty. And they will run back and tell these men and they won't believe them just a bunch of women. That's how they literally viewed women back then. Y'all, what do you have Drinking early in the morning? So they have to go run and see for themselves. And Peter and John will race and John will win. They will see the empty tomb. And then he will appear to them and it will become plain to them and clear over time that death has been undone. The curse has been broken and is now reversed. Sin, Satan, and death have not won. He knows, as he's telling them this, that beyond the grief and the sorrow of Good Friday, there is exceeding abundant joy of Resurrection Sunday. 
Can you imagine telling someone something you know is coming and they don't have a clue, but you're just promising them there will be joy in the morning. Your laughter, your, your, your sorrow will turn to gladness. And Jesus describes it like the pain of childbearing. The incredible pain women endure to bring life into the world is incredibly painful, as, as I'm told, as men are told, we don't know. But that pain is eclipsed by the joy of that child's first cry. And the first moments that you get to see a marvel at what God has done, look at this life. I can't believe from us God made this. And it surpasses the pain. The pain is still felt, but the joy is greater than the pain. And so when we say joy in Christ is not devoid of pain and suffering, we say it's actually richer and deeper because of pain and suffering. Because the joy transcends and rises above the pain and suffering. Tim Keller, he defines joy as this, the buoyancy that results from the enjoyment of the unchanging privileges we have in Christ, the promises we have in Christ. The privileges, the promises, the, uh, you just name anything, the truth of who Christ is, the truth of who we are in Christ, gives us a buoyancy in life, this floating ability. Buoyancy means to stay afloat. Delight means to be light, stay above. So it's not that we're devoid of suffering or sorrow, but the joy we have in Christ can be experienced always in and beyond and through all circumstances because of the promises that we have in Christ. The promises and privileges we have in Him are unchanging and secure, and not even death or suffering can change that. This makes even more sense when you consider that the opposite of joy is not sadness, but hopelessness. And the promises and privileges that we have in Christ don't seem to be true or coming true anymore. When it's so dark, is this really going to happen? Is this really true? Are we really headed to those good days? Am I ever going to get beyond this dark veil that I'm living in? You lose hope. You don't have joy. Because you can't see what's true anymore. Our eyes have been captivated more by the grief than the promises that we have. This is why Paul would say in 1 Thessalonians 4, when describing how Christians respond to fellow Christians dying, that we grieve, but not as those who have no hope. Which implies, number one, we still grieve. We should. But two, it's not like those apart from Christ who don't have hope. It's with hope, which leads to joy. Joy can't be taken away because our joy is rooted in Christ and no one can take Christ away from us and no one can take us away from Christ. Which is why we can say we can have joy in Christ always. Always. This is the good news our city and our region and our world needs. This is why we exist. To proclaim this joy found in Christ available ultimately in Jesus and is greater than any temporary joy. Like our nation, our world, is, it's just heartbreaking. It feels like everyone is struggling with something. Like literally. I, don't, I hardly know anyone who's just like, ah, nothing really is going on. It's just kind of boring. Not really struggling with anything, facing any challenges. Everyone seems to be barely hanging on. And if all we do is self-medicate with food, alcohol, Netflix, sleep, working out, games, gambling, or whatever we're doing to give us these small hits of endorphins that make us feel better for a bit, we're basically living like drug addicts. Just give us the next fix to get us through the next day. 
And we're just bouncing from day to day, living for the next fix. Like, does anyone think that's the abundant life Jesus came to give us? There is something better, because there is someone better, and His name is Jesus. He is everything. He has done everything necessary for us to have eternal life and abundant life. And a life filled with joy rooted in Jesus. Life in Him. Life with Him. Life following Him. Life enjoying Him and the gifts of His grace that He gives us. Life enjoy being loved by Him. Like this is the gospel. This is the good news we have for us in the world. It's literally what the gospel means, good news. In the old King James, sometimes you see it as glad tidings, which means here is the news that brings gladness. What is the news that brings gladness? Friday night, uh, we had a volleyball match, and uh, we all went out to eat at a restaurant afterwards. There's only like five restaurants that can accommodate about 50 people and be relatively cheap. And so Chick-fil-A is on that list. And uh, it's a restaurant that's so good, right? We joke about Chick-fil-A. Why don't we just turn the government over to Chick-fil-A? Like, they do everything well. They're efficient, professional, delicious, all those kinds of things. Like, do they ever do anything wrong? So I'm sitting there at the restaurant, and I'm being curious about how, how do you sit at a table and make an order on a map, a mobile app, and have them bring it to your table so you don't have to stand in line. Like, I haven't figured that out yet. So I'm just sitting there, and there's a little placard that has cookies on it. I'm like, oh, like a cookie. So do, 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 go through the whole process. Table 80, bring me a cookie. So we're hanging out, talking, waiting, 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 waiting. They tell you your servers bring me your cookie. I'm looking around, I don't see a cookie coming. <laughs> I got tired of waiting, so eventually, uh, we had to go. So I went up to the counter. I was like, hey, I ordered a cookie. And they said they were brought, brought to my table, table 80, but I never got it. So she looks at the system, and it's not in the system. She's like, let me look at your phone. She looks at my phone. She says, oh, well, you ordered this at the drive through restaurant down the hill. And I was like, well, why did I put table 80 in there? She's like, I don't know. That's weird. So being Chick-fil-A, I'm expecting the next thing is I'm not being, oh, well, we'll just give you a cookie. No. She's like, they got it down the hill. So like my heart sank. Like. <laughs> so I walk out. I'm like thinking as I walk to the car, am I gonna go down and get this cookie? It's a dollar and a half cookie. Who cares about a dollar and a half cookie? I want to go home. It's raining. It's late. But I'm like, I want that cookie now. <laughs> so I get in the car and I drive down the hill and I go to the drive-through and I explain the whole situation. She's like, what's that? What's the address? So I tell the address. She goes, I'm not seeing it in my system. She's like, I'm like, well, they told me up the hill that I had to come down here, that you had it down here. She goes, I know, but, so I'm just like, you got to be kidding me. So again, I'm expecting the next word out of her mouth, but just drop through, we'll give you a cookie. Nothing. <laughs> so at this point, I'm done. I, I just said, look, I'm not driving back and forth to these restaurants for a dollar and a half cookie. So you got to have a good night, I'm out. And as I start to drive off, I'm rolling my window up, and I can hear her say, would you like a cookie? But I was so hurt. And so disappointed, Chick-fil-A. I'm like, no, I want a cookie. I just keep driving. But my belief in the goodness of Chick-fil-A is so high, like I'm literally, as I'm driving out and around, I'm expecting the employee to come running out with a cookie. Sir, we want you to have a cookie. We love you. It's okay. <laughs> Nothing. I go home, and I get to the house, and I'm telling this story to Jennifer and uh, immigrants. And I'm like, when Chick-fil-A fails you, which never happens, it feels like God hates you for some reason. <laughs> 
If this goes wrong, then the promises of God are in question. The love of God is in question. So he laughed about it and went to bed. So yesterday, I'm in all day in Natchitoches coaching volleyball, and Emory's staying at ACT, and she had a flat, so Jennifer had to pick her up. And she's like, I want some Chick-fil-A for lunch. I'm taking the ACT. So they go to Chick-fil-A. They make an order. And Emigrates goes in. And the group in front of her had been one of that, those groups of people that want to pay for the next person. So not only did they get free lunch, but they had ordered two bags of cookies. Because if you know my wife, she's like, my husband's getting a cookie today. <laughs> so they had ordered two bags of cookies so everyone could have a cookie. And it was all free. So she tells me, I got this story about Chick-fil-A. I want to tell you when you come home. So I get home, and she's got two bags of cookie. God loves you. He's giving you all these free cookies, and it's free. Like, it doesn't cost any money. And I'm, like, eating cookies last night and getting sick because they're so rich. And it, it's, it's a silly example, but it's a taste. It's a story that is a taste of how God really feels about us. Like, he doesn't hate you. You are his as his child. If you trusted in Jesus, he loves you. And he wants to overwhelm you with as many free Chick-fil-A cookies as possible, metaphorically speaking. He wants to remind you every day that you are his dearly loved child, his dearly loved son, his dearly loved daughter. He's not an overbearing father who's just watching you and waiting for you to mess up so he can strike you down. He's the perfect dad who wants to spur you on in love and freedom and joy to enjoy being his. Yeah, you're going to mess up. He knows that all fathers know their children are going to mess up. But he's not looking to kick you wide and down. He's looking to pick you up, bring you back. Yeah, let's, let's do it again. Let's try again. Let's give it another go. I want to help you. I'm going to coach you. I'm going to teach you. I'm going to put people in your life. I'm going to help you experience what I've come to give you my goodness, my joy. Who doesn't want that kind of life with our Father in Heaven? Who doesn't want to experience that kind of life? And it's all possible because of Jesus. Freely giving Himself, paying the price we can't pray, pay, so that we can experience this life with Him. Do you have that? Are you living in that place? Are you living within the boundaries of that freedom and that joy and that wholeness and that health? If you stray beyond, guess what? He's a good dad. He's come to find you. He's going to bring you back. He's going to keep you there. If you don't know him as father, if you don't know him as friend, if you don't know him in this loving, warm relationship, Jesus is here this morning to give you life. If you will turn from your sins and trust in him, and call out there for salvation. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much that this is who you are. The God who's come near, the God who saves, the God who loves, the God who gives his life for us. Thank you that you are not this distant God, this cold God, this uh, domineering, oppressive God. But you actually came to give us eternal life with you. In the land where there is no more suffering or sorrow or pain or death. You've come to give us abundant life now where we can experience the closeness of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the hope, the joy, the peace of Jesus. God, we are desperate for that. 
in the midst of how hard life is, how difficult life has been, how much of a struggle everything seems to be right now, we are desperate to enjoy you in the deepest part of our soul. Help us, our city, our region, the nations are desperate to know you that way. And we have this message that we can take to them. So show us how to be that church that lives it in such a way others can see it and proclaims it in such a way others can believe it. So meet us where we are. Whatever everyone needs in this room, Jesus, meet that need right now. According to your glorious riches, bring salvation where there needs to be salvation. Bring challenge where there needs to be challenge, conviction where there needs to be conviction, encouragement, and hope. And ultimately, Jesus, let it all lead to joy. Because you are the joy giver. We ask all these things in your name.
Psalm 69 says, You know my reproach and my shame, my dishonor, my foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, there was none. For comforters, I found none. They gave me poison for food. For my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Let their own table before them become a snare, and they're at peace, but with my shroud. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see. Let, uh, make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them. Let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be in isolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. For they persecute him, and we have struck down. They recount the pain of those who have wounded. Add to them the punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out from the book of the living. Let, uh, let them not be enrolled among the righteous. But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah. And people shall dwell there, possess it. The offspring of his servant shall inherit it. And those who love his name shall dwell in it. Make haste, O God, to deliver me, O Lord. Make haste to help.